like to introduce uh, Phil Napoli. Philip is a professor of journalism and media studies at the School of Communication and Information at Rutgers. And he's something of a, of a wolf in sheep's clothing, if I can say that. Uh, Compliment? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> he's someone who is um, uniquely able to talk to the industry and the industry's lobby groups and uh, and sort of a legislative policy side of the media world with a message that's fundamentally destabilizing, a message that's really about disruption of existing uh, audience metrics models, uh, understandings of engagement, and understanding of impact. He's written a couple books. I think one of the reports that some of you probably know, this uh, report that came out this summer that he did for the uh, Lear Foundation called Measuring Media Impact and Overview of the Field. And it's a terrific sort of introduction over to this area, state-of-the-art mapping of what's been happening. It's terrific, and it's online and, um, and fresh, <laughs> fresh off the press. Uh, Philip is probably best known for books like uh, Audience Evolution, New Technologies, and the Transformation of Media Audiences, uh, by Columbia in 11. Audience Economics, Media Institutions, and the Audience Marketplace, and another Foundations of Communications Policy, Principles and Process, and Regulation of Electronic Media. So he's someone who really works at, at works on the audience as an entity, as a construction, as a construction that's a policy construction and economic construction, a construction also of technologies. And his work has been, I think, of all the folks out there working in this, right now one of the hottest areas uh, in the field, given the technological changes. His stuff really has his, uh, his both has his finger on the pulse, but is also reshaping the climate in a very active, an activist sort of way, despite all appearances to the contrary, I think, to your interruptions. <laughs> so, Philip, welcome. And, uh, Thank you. I, I got to come up here more often and get introductions like that. No, no one else does that, so I appreciate that. Uh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk today um, about, I'm going to use that, uh, some of what William had talked about, some of the uh, sort of my sense of, of this emerging, and, and, and I'll sort of question that a little bit, but this, this field of, of media impact as a starting point uh, for some thoughts and some examples of, of some of the things I've been doing uh, that really do fall into this larger umbrella uh, of, of, of concerns that are, are becoming increasingly prominent all around these notions of ways of quantifying journalistic performance. The media impact is, is just one. Uh, and the irony for me is that when uh, the Lear Center, who I, I give credit here, that they, uh, they sort of asked me to parachute into this space and write this report for them, um, I didn't know that, uh, A, I didn't know that they had published it and, were, and it was circulating because it's led to uh, these, these other you know, opportunities to get involved in related Areas I didn't really see myself as necessarily sort of a, you know, a, a researcher who did this particular kind of work, but some of these questions that were being posed to me uh, were just too interesting to pass up. Uh, and I, so I'm going to talk a bit about this larger space of, of how we assess journalistic performance that that the media impact work has has ultimately led to. And um, so just to give you a sense of of the plan, well, we'll lose some visuals today, but at least it's working to this extent. I'm going to talk a bit about media impact assessment uh, and some of these other efforts as I mentioned, uh, but then also talk a bit at the end about some of the interesting hazards, and, and these aren't just methodological hazards, they're sort of political hazards too. Uh, I'm going to end up, I'm going to conclude on what I hope you'll find a 
both sort of funny and scary story about what can happen when you, when you work in this space. Uh, so to start off, um, I think it's just, it was important as I was trying to map this field to understand what has led to its fairly recent uh, emergence or its fairly recent prominence uh, in so many spaces. I'm going to focus today on, on journalism in particular, but of course, as, as, as many of you are involved with, also in this space of documentary film, and these certainly uh, intersect quite a bit. Uh, and, uh, and there's also work being done in the areas of even more sort of social interest oriented uh, you know, fictional film. Uh, but in any case, what, what we see uh, is uh, an emerging and increasingly uh, pronounced need by media organizations to have a much more comprehensive sense of their performance uh, in, in a changing media environment. This is a topic I get into a bit in, in some of my audience work as well, but to see it emerge here uh, is interesting because it has to do with, once again, in the space of journalism, uh, sort of the breakdown of many of the traditional um, metrics for success, the traditional criteria of value, ultimately, the, in, in many cases, the, the traditional mechanisms by which revenue was captured. So as we see uh, circulations diminish and news audiences diminishes in various spaces, um, uh, news organizations are looking for other ways of demonstrating the value of their audience. And there's a lot of interesting work going on uh, to try to, uh, other folks are doing, to try to sort of articulate that. Um, and it's also a recognition, though, that we are in a time when there are so many new information uh, flows at our disposal from an evaluative standpoint uh, that a lot of what were the traditional um, you know, performance criteria, circulation, and things like that seem very antiquated and, and uh, you know, very, very limited. Uh, but the other part of this that I think is important is that uh, the role increasingly that various funders are playing in this process. Uh, it's an interesting time within this space of journalism as sort of the traditional economic model has broken down a bit and increasingly funders uh, are moving into this space and, in, and trying to help incubate either nonprofit or even for-profit journalistic enterprises. Uh, but these funders come to this space with uh, a, a very pronounced set of concerns about how they can assess how effectively their, their investments uh, are, are being managed, essentially. Uh, so increasingly, we're finding um, you know, that, that the funders themselves want to move in a direction of greater quantification of, of performance in this media space, something that used to be more common in, in other areas of funding, but is now uh, very pronounced in, in the media space. And, and, and so the, you know, the, ne the needs of the funding community to, to better assess uh, their grantees and to better assess strategically how to um, allocate their funds or, or needless to say, a, a really pronounced driver of all of this. Um, the part of this I think is, is interesting is that when you, when you sort of delve into this work, how often you see, and these are just a few examples, how often you see this described as a, as a new field, uh, as, a, as you know, that this is you know, no consensus around what constitutes impact over media. Uh, no thoughtful measures about how news stories travel and what effect they have. Now, if you talk to a, a you know a, a communications scholar, a media effects scholar, where we have media effects work going on for for decades upon decades, uh, their head explodes when they when they hear this. They say, "What do you mean? There is there's you know." We know nothing about this, that this is entirely new. Uh, so, so that tension was something I, I wanted to try to reconcile as I was trying to um, understand the contours of this field. And, and here is my effort at it. What is, what, you know, what, what is new uh, about it? And it, it, it's new in sort of 
areas of emphasis, I think. Uh, so for example, um, there's a much more macro orientation, I would argue, to, this, to the realm of, of media impact. But if we look at sort of this large body of what we call media effects research, uh, it's much more micro orientation in that the unit of analysis is frequently, very frequently, the individual media user. And it's really about exposure to specific messages and their impact on users' attitudes and beliefs and cognitions. Uh, and so to understand what I mean in terms of this contrast, the impact uh, work often extends well beyond the individual media users uh, and whether or not their attitudes and beliefs and cognitions were affected, but to also include broader systemic change at the levels of organizations and institutions and policy. And within the you know, traditionally defined media effects literature, you see relatively uh, little of, of that kind of work. So it's a, a broader canvas we're talking about here when we're talking about media impact. Uh, it's also about, I think, to some extent, emphasis on short versus long-term effects. Uh, in the media effects literature, again, there's a, a, a large body of it, uh, the focus has tended to be very much on short-term effects, in large part because uh, it was never easy to really uh, measure f effects of a longer term due to issues of, of, of methodological challenges and, of course, basic issues even of, of cost and doing that kind of long-term research. So a lot of the media effects research is sort of laboratory-based, short-term effects-based. Even, even a lot of the survey work that's done tends to be much more uh, oriented towards shorter-term effects. Uh, in the media impact space, the emphasis, I'm not saying that the work has achieved this yet, but the emphasis, the objectives are much more about trying to understand and capture uh, longer lasting social and institutional change. And I think and the hope here is that some of the newer data sources that are available and the new methodologies that can be employed might facilitate that. But I think this still remains very much an open question, but it still represents, I think, an important distinction in terms of the nature of the priorities that characterize these uh, two areas, if we're going to accept them as, as, as somewhat distinct, though certainly overlapping uh, areas of research. Um, and then the third, um, perhaps most important, is the extent to which in the media impact space there is this emphasis on engagement as an indicator of impact. And I'll, I'll sort of define this a bit as it's emerging in, in the journalism space, um, where it's that notion that it's not necessarily effects on attitudes, beliefs, and cognitions that matter exclusively. Uh, it could be just issues of uh, the nature of the interaction and how much interaction takes place. If you look at uh, the media impact assessment work that's been done so far, uh, they it moves very much away from the traditional effects model of a linear sort of sender-receiver uh, relationship and looks much more at it as a, uh, as, as a series of interactions, more, more of a cyclical relationship. Uh, but where what we might argue, things that we might call precursors to traditional effects are intrinsically valuable. Uh, things like how are the media used, what are the consumption dynamics like, what levels of, particularly important, what levels of activity and feedback and loyalty are demonstrated, and what further interactions are provoked. So this is where we get into issues as, you know, in the journalism space. I'm not going to get into a ton of detail today on, on various methodological approaches, but this is where, or the kind of data that are being used, but this is where we see the work that's focused on, for example, how much sharing of a news story takes place, or how much, uh, you know, how many comments does it generate, um, 
how many likes, uh, you know, which is a, something that's, you know, be, you know, be fairly, uh, you know, controversial in terms of what it actually means. Uh, but these are all the kinds of interactions. We wouldn't necessarily think of them as, a, as an effect in the, in the traditional sense, that is, you know, from a media effects researcher's, researcher's standpoint, uh, but they are sort of uh, indicators that perhaps uh, an effect is brewing. Uh, but they become valuable in and of their own right within the uh, context that the folks who do media impact assessment are, uh, are, are defining what matters. Um, and so we see, which is in some ways a bit telling in terms of, of where this field is, uh, that we see engagement being uh, approached in, in a number of different ways as a, as a precondition uh, for other forms of impact, uh, as a proxy, uh, for forms of impact that might be resistant uh, to assessment tools, but then even as a relevant form of impact uh, in its own right, that it's not even necessarily thought of as uh, representative of something else, but as uh, the end-all, be-all, as, as, as an important indicator uh, of impact in and of itself. Uh, and, and all this, there is this kind of diversity in terms of how impact is being uh, conceptualized is, is, is in many ways a reflection of, of, of the relative newness of this subfield, I think, uh, but also a uh, reflection of one of the probably most prominent sort of themes throughout this work, uh, which is that uh, it is potentially dangerous to try to standardize how the impact of any journalistic initiative is, is assessed, that it should be an approach that reflects, and to some extent, the particular priorities or the particular characteristics of, of, of the, each individual organization, each individual enterprise. Uh, now, that is, that is, it is a, bit, you know, a source of tension because at the same time then, um, absent any kind of standardization or any kind of commonality across these assessments, you lose the ability to make any kind of meaningful comparisons to track uh, performance across different organizations over time, etc. Uh, but that, I think, is sort of the defining tension in this world of, of, of impact assessment. Does it become specialized and, and, and tailored to each individual project, or do we try to develop some sort of standardized mechanisms that can be applied in different contexts to allow for that sort of uh, comparisons to, to take place? Uh, so that's, you know, again, I just, I just wanted to use that as a, as a point of introduction to some of this other um, work on, uh, on quantifying journalistic performance that, uh, that I'm starting to get involved in as well. Um, and that's where I talk about this idea of going beyond, I can't see it up there, beyond impact assessment. A couple things. Um, meeting of critical, critical information needs. I'm going to talk a bit about, uh, and again, I hope all these things sort of connect thematically. In my mind, they do. Uh, we'll see how it all, all sort of nets out in the end. Uh, but this, this work, uh, in this case, the meeting of critical information needs is actually, we've seen this kind of uh, assessment of journalistic performance find its way into the policy space. As William mentioned, I, I, I do a lot of policy work as well. Uh, and in fact, very controversially over the course of the past couple of years, the Federal Communications Commission has moved into this space. I'm going to talk a bit about that and then about some work I've been doing with the, um, the Democracy Fund and the Dodge Foundation on assessing both local media ecosystems and the quality of, of journalistic content. Uh, but some of you may remember uh, the, uh, the Knight Foundation a number of years back issued a report. I'm going to get the title wrong, but it was something about critical information needs of the American public, and it sort of set a very broad agenda, uh, and it sort of pollinated a lot of work in a lot of different areas. 
including within the Federal Communications Commission, which issued a, uh, a proceeding uh, that not only included a very large, their own sort of detailed research and sort of narrative report on, on the state of, of, of the media environment in, in, in the U.S., but ultimately uh, a number of us were asked to produce a, a report on the critical information needs of the American public. And in this report, we were asked to, A, which was challenging, sort of define the range of relevant critical information needs that communities have, and then B, look at the existing literature in terms of how well these needs were being met, and then C, uh, develop a, a proposal, sort of the basic contours of a methodology uh, by which an assessment of whether communities' critical information needs are being met could be carried out. So again, it's a, it's a, a, a related type of performance assessment in this case, whether or not local news organizations are meeting the critical information needs uh, of their communities. Uh, how many of you know where this, how this story ends? Just out of curiosity. I, oh, good. Um, it doesn't end well. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in any case, our report ended uh, with these, I thought, fairly innocuous recommendations that policy-relevant research must capture the increasingly complex functioning of local media systems uh, in ways that account for the role played by all relevant stakeholders. And by that, we were just really trying to say that uh, the traditional FCC model of understanding the media environment couldn't be about assessing what, your lo what the local broadcast stations, uh, you know, TV uh, and radio broadcast stations and newspapers were doing, that that was not really uh, sufficient anymore. Uh, but also that future research should uh, try to understand the emerging patterns of information production and distribution and consumption that are developing within and across media platforms. Um, this is where things started to go off the rails. Um, but uh, I'll probably get to the details of that at, at the very end. Uh, so our recommendations, we weren't happy about this, but it was, you know, it was, thank you very much. We'll get back to you with the, uh, um, you know, when we've got the funding together to do the actual study. Uh, find out a year and a half later that, in fact, they've asked a consulting firm to go ahead and take our proposed methodology and, uh, and develop a study with it. The reasoning behind this will become clear. Uh, but in any case, the consulting firm developed the methodology, and it was put forward for public comment. Um, and here were the, the, the components of this. Again, sort of trying to systematically assess how well uh, local news systems essentially were, were functioning. First part of it was a media market census in which they were going to do a content analysis of television, radio, print, and online media. Uh, constructed week sample, which is just we had sort of recommended that they be done. Uh, but then also interviews with ma management level and journalists and editors within these uh, local media organizations. And then the other part of it was what they called a community media ecology, uh, which was a, a population survey uh, asking members of the community what their critical information needs were, and then also engaging in in-depth interviews uh, with residents in diverse neighborhoods to, to try to capture it in a more um, granular way. Okay? And again, the goal was to see what sort of level of connection or disconnect there was between the needs of the of members of the community and the nature of the content that was being produced. Um, fairly unprecedented for, uh, for the FCC to start moving in this direction uh, with this kind of potentially systematic assessment of, of how well uh, local media ecosystems were, were functioning. And the original plan was for this to be uh, pilot tested uh, in six markets. 
in, in the U.S. However, uh, and again, I'll get into the details of this later when I talk about the hazards of doing this kind of work, the methodology was subjected to incredible criticism uh, of, of a variety of sorts, uh, particularly for the interview element of this, that it was the government um, you know, uh, intruding into the newsrooms, uh, and that that was you know, uh, overstepping the bounds and would be a potential slippery slope that could lead to, to government regulation. Uh, so the study was ultimately scaled back, first scaled back to one market, uh, but then uh, earlier this year was, was canceled uh, completely. Um, so that was that. So one would think. Um, one of the things we had heard uh, after this study was canceled uh, was that the FCC chairman was putting feelers out to various uh, foundations uh, to see if they might sort of pick up the torch and run with it. Uh, that it was essentially too volatile an issue for a government agency to be involved with this kind of performance assessment of, uh, of journalism, uh, but that perhaps uh, you know, others could, could take it up and run with it. And, and I, I, part of me thinks that this is what led to which, with the project I'm working on now called the, uh, the News Measures Research Project, uh, because this is one of those cases where it doesn't happen often, where it was a, a funder. I didn't go to a funder with a particular proposal. They came to me and said, would you like to run with these couple of things that we'd like to see you know, some progress on? And I said, okay, let's, uh, and, and these are what they, what they are. Um, yes, the Democracy Fund and the Dodge Foundation, these are the two folks who are funding this work that we've just started literally this past month. Uh, and there's two parts of this, and this should start to sound a bit familiar after hearing about the, uh, the FCC study. Uh, first part of it is assessing the health of local media ecosystems. I'll talk a little bit about each of these. Uh, second part is about actually assessing news quality, which um, I, <laughs> I'm going to regret saying yes to this, I think. Uh, and then third is assessing the needs and interests of, of local news audiences. So it's this three-pronged um, initiative to, again, develop tools, indices, whatever the case, whatever sort of criteria we can uh, to better inform decision makers about how well um, news organizations are serving their communities. Um, the first part of this, this is the sort of the key question that's guiding us. Uh, how robust is the news and information infrastructure that serves local communities? Um, can we develop a set of metrics that uh, could inform decision making for policymakers and funders and news and information providers and ideally researchers as well. We want it to be something that could be taken up and utilized uh, by folks who do research in this area. Um, and again, we're in the, in, the, in the very early stage of this. We're trying to you know, deal with issues of how much we want it to be sort of actually involve analysis of content or just have it focus on the sort of structural characteristics of these markets and the nature of the, uh, of the, of, of the information sources that are there and the quantity and the vibrancy of them. So there's, there's a lot of, of variables to be hammered out at this point. So this is very much a, uh, a half-baked thing at this point, but hopefully it'll get baked as we, uh, as we work on it over the course of this year. Um, Second part, uh, what are the key attributes of quality journalism? I'm happy that, at least in, for this part of the project, we've just been asked to organize a convening where this begins to get debated. So we're not, at, we're not asked to provide an answer yet, but just sort of provide a forum for, these, for this question to be uh, discussed. Uh, and how can these be objectively measured? Uh, again, this is a, sort of one of these third rails of journalism research, I think, for a very long time when we start getting into these issues of quality, where traditionally we've seen, from my sense, sort of three 
uh, distinct approaches. One is to actually approach quality in terms of financial investment, quality as, as, in, you know, as represented in the news resources. How, much, how many dollars are being invested in the production of news in a well-defined community? Uh, second has been about um, audience response. That is, what are audience perceptions of the news and information they get? Do they perceive it uh, as being high quality? Uh, and then third is actually developing objective measures and applying it to the actual content. Um, you, directions as such as how much of it sort of fits the criteria of investigative reporting, how much of it appears to be drawn from news releases, how much of it uh, is, you know, falls into the category of um, you know, political and public affairs news. And these things start to get very subjective and obviously very controversial when you start deciding what is good news and what is not news, what is good reporting, what is not good reporting. You get into issues of yeah, how many sources or diversity of sources, all those sorts of variables could potentially come into play uh, in this sort of more content-oriented approach to understanding news quality. Uh, so this is another, you know, again, it's, I find it interesting, sort of taking a step back from this, that these are the kinds of questions that some of the, the folks who are, who are funding local news startups, both profit and non-profit, want to, want to understand to, to sort of to guide, their, uh, to guide their work going forward. And then lastly, um, qualitative assessment of the needs and interests of, of local news audiences. Uh, the goal here is for this work actually to be conducted in partnership uh, with local media outlets. Uh, and that's because one, one of our partners is, is the Dodge Foundation, and they do a lot of, they, their work focuses entirely on New Jersey, and so they have been funding uh, initiatives across all sorts of sort of community health measures, you know, political health and environmental sustainability, and now they want to, uh, you know, to understand the, the media space well, but they want a lot of these local news initiatives that they've been uh, supporting to start to think differently about their relationship with their audience and to, our, so we're sort of part researcher, part cheerleader, I think, in this project, and that we're trying to not only give them information about what are the needs and interests of their, uh, of their community so that they can better serve them, but to also try to facilitate uh, a cultural shift in, in these news organizations uh, where assessment of community needs and interests becomes a more central part of how they go about doing their work. Uh, so that, that is in, in the earliest stage that we're going to be doing uh, all this work will be done on a um, pilot tested on, on three as yet to be determined uh, communities in, in the state of New Jersey. Uh, which New Jersey, of course, is an interesting place to, to do this kind of work because it's, uh, it has no actual media markets of its own. Half the people basically live in the Philadelphia media market. Half the people live uh, in the New York media market. Uh, and for whatever reason, that's, you know, the uh, folks who, uh, both these foundations, think that's a sort of an interesting environment in which to start to try to understand uh, these questions. Uh, oh, so, there we go. Yeah, so now, you know, to me, this is where, you know, these are, these are the things I'm worried about as I go into this. These are the hazards that have, have already emerged, I think. Uh, I think one of the most important things uh, as this sort of work not, is, is conducted but becomes institutionalized is the extent to which uh, the goals and the activities of news organizations become shaped by these considerations about what sort of impact, for example, is measurable. Um, it perhaps goes without saying, but you know, what is effectively and objectively measurable might turn out to be quite limited, might be very superficial, really might fail to represent the things that really matter when we want to understand journalistic performance. 
Uh, so that's something we certainly uh, need, to, need to look out for. Uh, second part here is that, uh, which has been largely absent, I think, from this conversation, but that we need to understand um, the possible impact of journalistic presence separate from or distinct from uh, individual stories. And by that I mean um, the very existence of news outlets uh, in a community can have important effects in terms of deterrent effects on corruption in politics, corrupt, who knows, in the corporate sector, etc. So there's you know, we need to not only measure the impact of the need to measure the impact of the absence of these news organizations, while we also measure the impact of their of their presence to sort of understand what is lost also when if these news organizations are not there. Unfortunately, the primary orientation at this point seems to be about tracking the impact of individual stories and sort of taking journalism and and going granular with it in that way. Uh, but to me. That's a, a, a very limited unit of analysis because it really does again, sort of shortchange the sort of how we've long assumed that the, the watchdog role of journalism functions uh, and that when in fact um, news organizations are present and active, the kind of activities, you know, <clears throat> The stories about corruption, perhaps you don't see them uh, because, in fact, the kind of corruption that might be taking place isn't taking place because there are concerns that there is a, a vigorous press there that could investigate and uncover this sort of thing. So we need to understand the, uh, and, and at least be cognizant of the effects that the very presence of, of news organizations can have in these communities as well and not just trace stories of how they flow online and how they get commented upon and how they, uh, um, you know, uh, you know how, much, how much feedback they get. Um, and needless to say, and I, this is going to be interesting to see how this is going, uh, you know, evolves going forward, uh, but we've already seen some resistance from those being measured. That is, you know, these news organizations um, are now being asked by their funders to do a lot of work that is sort of outside their traditional wheelhouse to also uh, you know, be actively involved in this kind of assessment or as is often the case also to allow their work to be assessed quite you know, rigorously by a, by a third party uh, and news organizations are not used to really being assessed in this way uh, and we're, you know, there's, I think um, as funders try to impose very specific um, impact models or performance assessment criteria on them, um, it, you know, we're already seeing some of this tension, but I expect we're going to see quite a bit more of it uh, going forward. Uh, and then lastly, uh, there are ways, especially when this spills into the policy sphere, and I think that's what's interesting about all this work at this point, uh, is how it is taking place in an environment where I, almost for the first time, I would argue, the question of the very survival of journalism has become an actual public policy issue. It really never was in this country. Other, uh, you know, where we, we, you know, we had a very vibrant commercial media system uh, and a very small non-commercial media system. Uh, and now, as the as the commercial model starts to struggle, uh, suddenly policymakers are engaging with questions of what can they or should they be doing uh, to make sure uh, that communities have the journalism uh, institutions, journalism resources serving them that they need. And that's, and that's, that's new territory for, uh, for communications policymakers in this country. 
so let me just, as I mentioned, I was going to tell this story of, of what happened uh, with, the, uh, with the FCC study. And we see, and actually this happens quite a bit, but anyway, uh, it began when members of Congress began to question the FCC, uh, and it became politicized very quickly that this research, and I described for you the methodology, and I'll leave it to you to decide whether or not that kind of research in and of itself suggests a more active uh, governmental role in the regulation of content, but the concern that ended up arising and sort of the, the narrative that emerged uh, was that this was going to lead to the return of the Fairness Doctrine. How many people are familiar with the Fairness Doctrine? This is going back a ways now. A few. All right, for the rest of you, the Fairness Doctrine was essentially uh, something we had up until the late 1980s in this country in which broadcast licensees were required to provide multiple perspectives on controversial issues of public importance. So uh, if, uh, if, a, if a news story tended to have a, you know, the famous examples were if, you know, uh, you ran a story about how data suggests that you know, cigarette smoking causes cancer, well then the tobacco industry could file a fairness doctrine complaint and demand that the other side on that, uh, of that issue be covered as well, that you know, cor- you know, correlation does not imply causality, there are other possible reasons why, and so it was this sort of mandated objectivity, uh, and many people argue that it, its primary effect was to have a chilling effect and that it led news organizations to just avoid controversial issues so as not to be burdened with um, fairness doctrine obligations. Uh, so the fairness doctrine lives on, and, it, and I, there's, a, there's a whole paper here, I was thinking about that today, there's a whole paper to be written uh, just on how the ghost of the fairness doctrine has permeated policy advocacy for the past uh, 20 plus years because uh, more often than not, uh, any you know, various FCC actions oftentimes will, will raise this bugaboo of the fairness doctrine, and this one did uh, as well. Now, so this is sort of what led to ultimately uh, the, the beginning of the process with the FCC abandoning the study. Uh, but even if you were the consulting firm who was going to do this study, you drew the ire of Fox News. Uh, and this got very ugly for a while, uh, where the, the, the consulting firm was attacked on a variety of fronts. It, my understanding is that the consulting firm ended up dropping out because the negative coverage that they received uh, about how, you know, that this was a return to, um, you know, uh, the fairness doctrine era and, and, and big government regulation of media content, that they actually received death threats. And you'd be thinking, that, that's crazy. Uh, but that, apparently they did. Um, and it trickled down all the way to us lowly academics who did the literature review. Fox News decided to dig up my $500 contribution to the Obama campaign back in 2008. Uh, but all of us, and you don't know how many cons- blogs there are, on, on, you know, conservative blogs are, until you see how far a, study, a, survey, a story like this flowed. Uh, but they dug down and looked at the political orientations. They investigated the universities, the governance structure for the University of Wisconsin and the uh, University of Southern California. It generated this whole detailed investigation uh, because of the uh, political, uh, you know, apparent political leanings, political contributions of those who authored the study. Uh, so uh, you can see all of us down there have been uh, outed as Obama contributors, except one of us, I think. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, so that, that became uh, part of the public record. Uh, and it led to this sort of thing. Oh, you can't, you can, you can, this is an actual email I got from some stranger. Um, the name was featured in the latest Obama scandal, infamous FCC study. My favorite part is at the very end. 
Hitler, Mussolini, and Mao told the people what they needed, may I remind you. Uh, so, you know, again, you know, it seems innocuous, this process of trying to understand journalistic performance, but it can get very highly politicized. I don't know who this person was, but I, I, I got a bunch of these. Here's my other favorite. Uh, this is where they start trying to go after my job. I have a copy of your resume, institutions you were employed at. Each will receive a copy of the article that you contributed, blah, blah, blah. I've spoken with the president of Rutgers on other matters, and I see a blurring of the line uh, to do this chilling study. So, you know, the, the, you know, I guess the lesson here was, you know, you don't know what you might be stepping into when you do this kind of work, but the, it, it does raise, a, you know, larger political implications, obviously, uh, about how our, our news organizations function, and certainly to that larger question of whether or not there should be any government, not, this isn't even government policy, this is just government inquiry into how news organizations work. Is that acceptable territory uh, for social scientific inquiry? Uh, and again, it was interesting to me to see essentially our government agencies decide to punt this research to the foundation community where I guess it's okay, but I know, am I going to get you know, angry emails if I, now that it's not government funded? I don't know, uh, or, or, you know but we, we shall see. Uh, but uh, that, you know, again, for me, the bigger picture is, um, you know, as we try to decide whether or not actually preserving and promoting journalism is a is a policy issue, uh, is is even informed decision making. This is just, this was just research at this point. Uh, do we are we allowed to actually try to inform these decision makers about how these news ecosystems work when they work? We know, you know, we don't know exactly that, but we know they're working very differently from the way they did uh, 15, 20 years ago. Um, so if you could see this work, it's, it's go, we'll be trying to keep people up to date on it as it moves forward. Uh, and here's, it's all part of a larger uh, project that we call the Media and Public Interest Initiative. Uh, you can you know, follow us there. Uh, but... Um, other than that, I'm happy to take any, any questions or suggestions for that matter as we start to move this work forward. We're seeking input from all sorts of sources about ways that this can be done in a way that's both robust and, and, and defensible. Thanks. Uh, historical note, which I think resonates with a lot of folks here in the audience. Um, but one thing that also occurred to me is that it's it's across a lot of fields, right? So the Chronicle had a piece today about um, professors who aren't happy with subject evaluations. Um, I'm an admissions officer here at MIT, and we're always defending ourselves against people who are like, "Well, you're I'm not my test scores, you know, I'm not yeah. my grades," yeah. and yet the 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 march on to assessment and quantification, even while everybody involved in making the assessments and assessing the assessments admits freely that they are inadequate and problematic and only measure what is measurable and so on and so forth. And yet there still seems to be the ceaseless drive towards that particular way of modeling, measuring, understanding, and evaluating modes of human behavior. Do you have any sense from your work in the field, from your uh, literature reviews, from your talks with colleagues in other fields, mm -hmm. what is driving that ceaseless 
ceaseless, painful, <laughs> unstopping march forward? I have a couple thoughts. In fact, Sean and I were talking about this before the uh, before I got here today. Um, on the one hand, I think it's about trying to have defensible decisions, right? Uh, that is, and I even saw this in, in the audience research work I was doing in, a number of years back, where it was okay. We have some data that show that this, you know, it's it's about defending. It's you know defending. You know, if a decision is bad, you can you can point back to a uh, an empirical justification for it. So I, I think that's part of it. But I think the other part of it, and, and this is the part that I'm, I'm becoming increasingly interested in, because as I do this work and I've done some work in the past, I'm starting to understand more the nature of how the funding community operates. And it's very interesting to me, as, as I was telling Sean, I said, when you do this work, you really are sometimes working for an audience of, of one, that you have a program officer. I, I think, for example, in this space, and I wouldn't be surprised if the same is true in the, in the documentary space, where you have these folks who are on the, you know, at the ground level of sort of allocating funds to, to content creators who recognize inherently the value of this kind of work. And, but in order to, and, 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 have, you know, and understand it and appreciate it. Uh, but they, in order to keep their program running, uh, in order to convince those for whom this is not their area of expertise, this area of passion, uh, it needs to be described to them and justified to them in the in, in these more ter- in what are becoming the you know the sort of um, widely embraced terms. So I, I, so I think I think it's that combination of, of of factors. But I think the other part of it is though too, and this is I think one of the really hazardous things that journalism needs to worry about is that there's just so much data there. And it's easy and cheap. Those things, you know, it never, it didn't used to be easy and cheap to assess how well a news organization was doing. But by, you know, if, you know, by the criteria of how much, you know, freely or cheaply available, you know, data is available, is available in, in massive quantities, it creates this, um, you know, very powerful incentive, I think, to, uh, to try to do something with it. So uh, I found it uh, really interesting. You, uh, early in your talk, you were uh, talking about impact and the fact that engagement is one of the terms that uh, gets uh, trotted out. And I'm just wondering if you have a model of engagement or how, uh, how, how, how do you measure engagement and what are some ways in which you I mean, I don't personally have one that I would advocate for. I, I mean, what I find interesting is that we see these sort of almost hierarchies of engagement starting to get created. In fact, from in this particular case where I feel like in, in this realm of journalism, I think my cynical take on it is that it just represents the lowest hanging of fruit uh, as, as impact measure uh, and, and that it's being embraced for those reasons, and that it's it's something that was easy to port from, in the, which I think is interesting. It's easy to sort of port over from the more the entertainment media space where it has a longer history. So it's it's a term that that resonates, uh, and it's it, you know the journalism community has has just gobbled it up, uh, and it can mean you know at this point still uh, a dozen different things. A lot of times, in fact, it really means nothing more than you know time spent with the content. Um, you know, to me, it's a robust, inherently more robust, you know, concept than that. Uh, but, um, but yeah. So I, you know, I am a little skeptical, I guess, of 
to what extent it should be equated with you know something as 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 farther reaching as impact. But the problem is the things that we really point to as uh, you know the, the most traditional, most you know types of forms of impact that journalists should aspire to: impact on policy, impact on politics. Those just don't happen enough. In, you know, those, those direct relationships don't happen enough to satisfy these much more short-term evaluative uh, processes that are, that are ongoing. And so I think that, you know, that's, that's my, again, a little bit cynical take, I think, on, on how this is becoming integrated into how we understand journalism. And I'm a, I'm a little, again, I'm a bit nervous about what it could ultimately mean because it really can drive journalism in very specific directions uh, as we start to learn more about what kind of stories generate these particular kinds of, of, of engagement uh, as, you know, that are, again, fairly superficial measures, I think. Do you want me to pay? I'm, I'm letting you run the show. Oh, okay. Borrowing any of the tools of the socially responsible investing community and how they're looking at impact beyond sort of these click numbers and comments and online engagement? That's, I think that's a great idea. That, uh, I haven't seen that in the, in, the, in the work that's been done so far too much at, at all, actually. I've seen more uh, pulling from um, health information campaigns or media development uh, work and things like that. But I, I think that kind of broader uh, umbrella would make a lot of sense, actually. Curious if you um, noticed any kind of shifting in this with the rise of uh, native advertising or sponsored content, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. If like it seems like there's a potential there for funders to like narrow their focus to just the content that they're putting in under kind of the guise of being the same type of content that uh, we would they would be measuring the impact of. Um, does that happen at all? Or? I've lost you. I think. When you, in other words, we talk about the kind of funders who are you know want to fund particular types of types of content. Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I guess like an example would be if, if somebody is just an advertiser in an online newspaper, then they want to know how well the actual newspaper stories are doing, yeah. uh, so that they can know how much their ads are getting seen. But if they switch to native advertising, where they have this thing that's masquerading as a news story, do they then switch to caring just? about how much that story itself gets seen. Yeah. I mean, in, in the space that I've been working in, more, more of these funders are more about um, trying to develop new organizations and trying to, to fill, you know, then, um, but we are starting to see these, you know, these, these sing, they call them the single-issue news sources. And I think that, you know, that to me, it starts to get, that can sort of correspond nicely to the type of, of, of funder interest you're talking about, which is I'm going to fund this news outlet that covers this issue, and then the, the line starts to get very, you know, very blurry. And, and that's a very, but that's a very new, you know, sort of a, a, a new development. So I don't, I don't you know, I, I mean, your question is a good one in that regard. I think, who knows? Yeah, yeah, your turn. Thank you. Um, I appreciate very much your talk. Um, one thing that I, that I feel is perhaps that uh, there has been an enormous transformation in, in, in the news as such. And information and such. So nowadays, what when when you uh, try to, to look something or read something or watch something, what we are really looking is for the usability of that. Mm-hmm. It's not a, the the product. It's almost the same, but the way you perceive it has changed. It is seen as a tool, as you said mm-hmm. uh, a minute ago about your preoccupation under the single, you know, the single issue kind of. of, of substance. So if we try to 
you know, use our old tools and, 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 and see things through the old filter. Okay, we are not going to get anywhere. I mean, things have changed. And therefore, perhaps even the tools of analysis should change and we should build and look more in terms of what, how do we look to, let's say, usability in terms of design and other things, and, and perhaps then see this transformation. Because, you know, in the past, how many newspapers you read? Maybe one or two or three. I can get 15 of them in half an hour and, and get, you know, whatever it's the issue I'm looking for. And so that transformation, I don't know, and I, I would like to see your opinion. It's interesting you bring that up because one of the things we're seeing in, in the journalism space, in, in, you know, some people are advocating for rethinking sort of journalism as product and more journalism as, as service, essentially, uh, where, and where then the more important criteria becomes how, how, you know, how useful is it, what, you know, how usable is it you know, to the actual community. Uh, and so you may have seen some of these you know, recent reports where news organizations say, you know what, anytime we do a story now, we're going to make sure that this story provides some way for the reader, the viewer, the listener to take action. Uh, and, but again, what this becomes, what this is feeding into is, you know, you'd like to say that that was genuinely motivated by a desire to sort of rethink how useful journalism provide people tools. We're not only going to tell you the story, we're also going to provide you with the information uh, and, the, and, the, and, and the direction to go if you want to act upon it in, in, in one of a variety of ways. But the reality is, it is about trying to sort of, sort of think about how the system is working now and how valuable it would be to show... You know, because this is not something an advertiser would care about. In the traditional model, the advertiser couldn't care less, right, if somebody um, you know, decided to donate to a cause based on a story that they read. But that is the, you know, the, you know, the, the gold uh, of you know, for a news, you know, what, in terms of what a news organization could show uh, their funders, right, that you know, X percentage of the folks who, who were exposed to this actually did something, uh, took action, found it useful, did something with it. Right, so, um, but it, so I, to me, and that's sort of an underlying theme of a lot of this is the extent to which there's sort of a, a tail wagging the dog uh, process at work here. Well, the Pulitzer and, and companies specialize in these sort of massive campaigns yeah. to boost their circulation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a, a different strategy to achieve. And that's what's interesting to see some of this about the very ethos of journalism changing, you know, that it can be more activist-oriented, that it can be. I, I have a, a class of, of, of seniors, journalism students. I'm not in business school anymore. I can understand that I was in business school. I brought up, you know, have you ever heard about the separation between church and state, that terminology that gets used? Nobody. Nobody. You know, and again, I was in a business school for a while where they, you know, they, you know, we didn't talk about that sort of thing as much. But to see a, you know, a, about to graduate room full of journalism students where this isn't even part of the conversation anymore, that very, it struck me. So yeah, I think in some ways we're starting to see these evolutions that do have uh, interesting historical uh, precedents. Just to follow, so yeah. what the truth um, you, you talked at the outset about the difference between effects, media effects, mm. and the sort of impact assessment. Different timelines, different specificities, but it sounds, at least from the kind of marketing people, ad guys, and media people that, that we talk to sometimes, that they're very much they very much embrace the language of engagement. Like it used to be about eyeballs and yeah. all that engagement. And what I'm struck by is the kind of the kind of parallel discourse and parallel efforts of people on the commercial side mm -hmm. with people on the social action side. Mm -hmm. 
I'm not sure what the people on the commercial side are aware of, but it seems like the people on the social action side, theory of change people, don't at all understand that kind of the very same things are happening to to generate you know to, to generate engagement in the commercial uh, sphere. Right. So am I wrong to think that are these are these notions of engagement being used kind of the same on both sides? Uh, is this a broader trend both on the commercial side and the sort of I think it is. I, I, I think it's. It's they. They are running in parallel. But I and I think. But in both cases, what's, you know, and again, it gets to that sort of tail wagging the dog analogy. I don't think in either case has this process gone this far yet without there being an understanding of why it matters. I, that underlying, and that's sort of a point I get into in the uh, into the media impact report in a lot more detail. That you know, generally speaking, when you, with, you know whether you know someone brought up education examples and things like that, to sort of understand the you know effectiveness of some initiative or another, there's a body of a historical body of data you could draw upon against which you test these measures that you've developed. That is utterly absent uh, you know to, at this point so it's that, that and that's what allows for this incredible flexibility in terms of what we're going to rely upon how we're going to define it um, you know if we start to try to understand a notion like engagement as sort of you know as a, as a causal agent within larger impact and understand the magnitude of the role that it can play then we have a reason to to think of it as a valuable proxy but you know we've we've not teased out those relationships yet but that, and that, and I think that, again, that's that's the one parallel I definitely see when I think about the work I was doing in more in the, in the commercial space before. That doesn't matter. You know, the, the train can still leave the station uh, if if the if the scenario that they're currently in is dire enough. And I think journalism fits that bill quite well as well, you know, just just as certain sectors of the of, of the of the entertainment media do. That they're willing to sort of migrate on to the next thing without knowing for sure that it's indeed uh, you know means what they're saying it means. We're going to recruit independently recruit individuals for for focus group conversations. We we're trying we, we you know the, our unit of analysis is very much community. So we're trying to we want to produce. Um, you know, little little microcosms of of these communities, and and, and that's the, the fascinating thing about Jer about New Jersey is, you know, towns in Jersey are the size of this room. It's like you go two feet and you're in another town in New Jersey. It's, it's it blows my mind for as being someone who was not from there. Uh, so you have these incredibly small communities, uh, and uh, with their own, you know, their own governments, their own infrastructures, their own education systems, uh, and so we're going to try. You know, we're, we decided that we're going to employ focus groups within each of these communities and and, and try to create this. You know, get a, a dialogue going as well. Because sometimes I think it's a little tricky to ask people, you know, what is it that you need? People don't always know, you know, what they need or can't, or can't articulate it necessarily. But we're hoping that through conversation about relevant issues, et cetera, that we get it, we, we, we tease it out that way uh, a bit more indirectly. Hope. There we are. It's, uh, we're putting faith in, 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 in community conversation in that way.
And so I'm just teasing out a couple things from your white paper. I don't mm. want to put you on the spot, but sure. I'm putting you on the spot um, in a way. Uh, so, I mean, one of the things you mentioned is this echo chamber effect mm. in media. You can do a lot of reading about media, uh, but not really even look at the media that it's referencing. Mm -hmm. so you can read an article about an article without reading the original article. Absolutely. So that happens a lot, and it happens to me a lot. And we, uh, especially when it comes to digital consumption, like that's very common. And then uh, the Boston Globe example with Sonia Song, where she says that people can engage with media without sharing it. Aren't you here, people Sonia? Can share media <laughs> Say that last part again. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just. Yeah, so uh, the idea was that people can engage with media without sharing it. People can share media without really engaging it or really consuming it. Mm -hmm. So I wonder what that does to your definition of engagement when you're looking at it this way. Um, and it is a little comforting to know that you are focused on doing focus groups and doing deeper dives on this, but we're actually saying it. No, did you In fact, we were doing a study this summer on um, how, how news, how the sort of the local news ecosystem function in relationship to Hurricane uh, Sandy. And we found good old-fashioned 1940s two-step flow processes at work where people, you know, there were folks, if you're not familiar, you know, who, who identify as opinion leaders or information leaders, and these folks actually, the data show, uh, the survey data show that they do spend more time with consuming media and that... You know, essentially, they are responsible to some extent for disseminating that information to members of their community through interpersonal channels. Uh, so yeah, and so that's why um, yeah, this is where a lot of the measurement I think starts to starts to break down, or at least requires it to absolutely be multi-pronged. That there needs to be a, and, uh, which I really agree with. There really does need to be a qualitative dimension. But and I think to me, the bigger the biggest danger is that we start to define these news ecosystems and the, and the process by which individuals engage with news purely in terms of how content flows online. And there's this it's, there's this incredible it's it's so tempting to do that because. You know, what was that line about the banks? That's where the, where the money is, right? It's around the banks. That's where the data is. You know? It's just there in, 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 in trove. So it's, it's, it's tempting to, to sort of define the universe in that way. So maybe I'm just restating what you're saying here, but at some point you, in, your, in your talk, you mentioned uh, that what is measurable may be limited, superficial, or fail to represent what matters. Mm -hmm. if, that, if, if you find yourself in a situation where a funder is asking you to uh, assess the impact, uh, yeah. And you come to the conclusion there's no way to assess that really means anything. Yeah. Is it ever an option <laughs> to do so? Well, I'll tell you, it's funny you say that because when I originally had these conversations with um, the Democracy Fund, it, it, they started out on this issue of impact. I said, I don't want to go there. <laughs> I said, I said let, let, how about this? Let, let me redirect. Because, uh, you know, because I, it was just. Um, you know, I just didn't. Hey, I, I just didn't think within the context of okay, here, give me by December an impact measure. Uh, uh. I, I, it's, it's that it's it's a it's a it's a massive multi-pronged undertaking. That again, there needs to be an understanding of what is the other larger body of relevant data that validates any of these impact measures. Uh, but again, and this is something we were talking about earlier this afternoon, that a lot of these funders operate under these incredibly short-term performance criteria for themselves that they need to demonstrate to their you know you know to, to their uh, higher ups that their that their work is 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 mattering within you know a, a very short period of time uh, so for me that meant you know 
I was a little more comfortable with notions of trying to understand what constitutes a healthy information ecosystem. Uh, and because, again, there I, I, I have a much stronger sense of how I'd like to see that relate, for example, to um, you know, what I know is already out there about readily available data I could link to about you know, political participation and community involvement and all these things that we assume a, a healthy uh, local news ecosystem can, can contribute to. Yes, I would. Yes, and and thank God. Yeah, it was like you know. Yeah, but, but I, you know, I'm dodging the question because if he had if he hadn't caved, would I have just gone for it anyway? <laughs> I don't know because I don't I don't think I could have handled the stress to be honest of trying to do that well. Uh, I'm already having a hard time with the stress of this project, <laughs> and I'm comfortable with this project. <laughs> yeah. Except in the most local of ways, I mean, how can you actually discreetly measure the impact of any one given news organization? So, for example, I work for the LA Times, and you know, we, we had uh, these award-winning stories about a, a city, a small city in LA called Bell and the corruption. Okay, so you can measure exactly what happened there because we were kind of the only news organization covering that. But then if there's a national issue and we break a story, but then the Washington Post improves on that and builds, and then you, and, you know, I mean, we all kind of glom onto these things. How, how would you actually measure where the impact was caused? Or, or well, it's interesting you say that because if you, if you like, for example, um, um, like a, a site like ProPublica, that's actually a big part of how they have how they measure their impact. They they want to see if, to what extent did the you know reporting that we do get picked up other places. You know that that that's you know that yeah that we don't. That's an important point about this notion of, of impact, at least how I'm seeing it evolve, is it's, it's not just about the effects on individual news consumers, that it is about any kind of institutional effects, um, you know, that those sort, of, those sort of ripple effects within the media sphere are often thought of as, as, as another type of impact that's, that's relevant. Uh, you know, so do we then, you know, so... You take it back entirely to the origin as I said, let's say you know, the LA Times has a story, but then mm. the Washington Post takes mm. up that story the following day right. and has more impact with it right. through what it reported. Yeah. Yeah, well, in, in in the models that I'm seeing, you know, these these, you know, again, we're not really dealing with organizations as large as the, as the LA Times, typically, but that origi originating news organization would say yes. This is they would take all the credit <laughs> because look at the impact. And so our work reached these people. They've then used it to reach the, this many additional people, uh, and we were the originators of it. But that's where, and that's where it you know, goes back to our you know the, our recommendations we put forward to the FCC is just just you know needing to understand exactly these type of of content flows to see whether or not there are you know what kind of stable patterns are, if any. You know, again, it might be very issue driven, uh, but to understand you know. And it's important too because it it points out that a lot of times things that we, you know entities we might point to as as news organizations are primarily just relayers of news and not actual producers of news. And so that's why in the work that I hope we do on the in the ecosystem analysis, we actually understand where are actual journalistic resources being uh, you know applied uh, and and not just you know relayed. All right? I don't I don't I, we were talking someone brought this example before about you sort of hear things through the echo chamber. My wife goes nuts when I find out something about, you know, Brad and Angelina before she did. I don't read the same stuff she reads, but 
it finds its way. You know, I'm interested in the movie business and media economics and whatever, and somehow A led to B led to C, and I know about the wedding before she did. You know, but I'm not even seeking that out. But uh, but the, you know, those those patterns we uh, you know need to be part of the, of this process certainly. Impact, but for the decision makers of the founders, like the foundations, they, they can't make a decision that we should put all our money to this guy. So, how do you balance the, you know, this problem? Well, again, I think it goes to, you know, they're going to evaluate the entity that they're funding based on, on the content that they, they produce. Now again, as I mentioned, I have a little problem with the, the focus being purely on, on the individual stories as the unit of analysis. So yeah, if they, um, but then you'd have to place, you know, using your example, okay, where, um, you know, where did that photo go next and where did it lead? Uh, some of you are probably aware, for example, the work that's, that's been done where they're you know, trying to understand what leads that true user-generated news to, to go viral uh, and you know, something posted on Twitter, for example. And the, my understanding is the, is the research overwhelmingly is showing that traditional news organizations are the most important sort of accelerant for something Going, uh, going, you know, viral, and that that term, you know, is almost even not even quite accurate because again, the, the we have this notion that all of us out there in the Twitter sphere are are really responsible when these things spread in that way. But more often than not, it is some traditional news organization, even if it is through their Twitter account, that they and because of the audiences that they've amassed, actually play a really important role uh, in the in the in, in that in that information spreading. Okay. Yeah. Um, for example, for are they present in a particular community? Let's say if they write about that community, or are you saying that they have to actually be read by a certain number of people in that community? What does it mean to be present in the context of also? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. If I have you know the exact answer, but my initial response would be um, treating presence again within the as you know equating it sort of with the. The threat of writing—that is, if if you know that you know—so presence would you know I wouldn't say again I would have to be, you know measure it in terms of volume of content per se, but if you know we you know we saw you know the closest thing I can point to is someone did a study of what happened when um, newspapers closed in three different communities. Sort of a, you know a natural experiment emerged there, uh, and I'm going to forget the nature of the uh, of the. Uh, of, of the of the of the effects that they looked at, but basically they were able to try. I think it might have been something as simple as um, um, political participation, how you know levels of voting, so that you know you had a sort of an interesting before and after. But you could imagine I was I'm working with a, a journalist where you know we were starting to imagine ways of sort of you know what might be indicators of political corruption at the community level and trying to understand whether the coming and going of news outlets seems to have any causal relationship to the volume of that sort of thing. But it gets tricky because, you know, it's sort of, now we get into that sort of the tree falls and no one's there. But, um, but again, if, if, this, if this kind of work could really scale so that you could do it, you know, so we could stop talking about study of three communities because, you know, that's just a, you know, that's a starting point to just, to, to, you, know, that, you know, this needs to really scale uh, so that we could have lots of, you know, um, you know a variation 
uh, to really start to understand, you know, these, you know, these processes. So um, I don't know if I got, got out of the question, but to me, it's it's about yes, are these news organizations present in the in the community? Uh, because in in theory, their presence should have some deterrent effects on some of the types of things that uh, you know that might happen, um, you know. Absent them, you know, and I'm pulling that, borrowing that from. There's a uh, an interesting article a number of years back now by by Paul Starr from Princeton, where he says goodbye, you know, is is, an, is t- the title of something, like, you know, goodbye newspapers, hello corruption. And his point was, as these newspapers go away, you're just inviting all the kinds of you know, ret- you know an increase in the types, various types of, of political and economic corruption that, in theory, newspapers' presence is supposed to you know curtail. Uh, but again, it, in theory, you don't need to write a story about it. Uh, you know, for that to, for that sort of deterrent effect to happen, it's the possibility of it being uncovered that might have this deterrent effect. Just you know, equate it to policing, right? That uh, um, you know, the presence of someone on a corner could have an effect, even if that person didn't arrest anybody that night. And then, um, if, if that is the not to happen. That's what I was more yeah. thinking. That's <laughs> but then also then would you look at uh, questions of like what would spring up um, if that when that journalistic organization as we thought of it ceases to exist? Like are people still concerned about being exposed by bloggers, mm-hmm. by tweets, by yeah. social media? I mean all of those things then yeah, and that's and that's where we start to understand. Yeah, the relative importance I think of, and you know of of different news sources. I don't have the I don't have the answer yet to how you know, how that would work, but I, these are the type of questions we need to be asking. Um, you may have touched upon this. You talked about uh, the health of local media ecosystem, mm-hmm. and we all know that nobody is completely healthy. Mm-hmm. Health is a relative concept. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if your research team has come up with like a cascade of relativity of mm-hmm. the healthiness of, and what is the ideal your know, European conception of an of a healthy local media ecosystem? You know, one of the things that people complain about measurement is is probably because we have we have a correct answer. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you're studying the health yeah. of Sure. Yeah. My, my answer to the first part of your question is no, not yet, but it's part of the plan. Uh, the second part is for me, I don't want to treat it, yeah, I don't want to treat it as any kind of, of binary or that there's any kind of ideal to be reached. And that's why I really want this to scale eventually, because I really just want it to be a, a relative measure, something that we can, you know, and so that. You know, only and only then will we know. You know, are there are there threshold the thresholds that matter? You know, I would love that if again as this research scales that we can and we start to be able to link it with these other relevant community level um, health variables that are already there. This is the one thing that Dodge Foundation has already done. They've sort of they assess the, across these other things. Um, that then we would have a sense, perhaps, perhaps particular thresholds would emerge. But I don't want to arbitrarily pick one or, or even you know, say at this point that I think this is what's going to matter most. I'm going into this you know, without you know, too many, I hope, preconceived uh, notions of what, matter, what matters the most.
if you found that for them, that for they themselves, is there a conflict between whether they're shooting for metrics for sustainability for like for funding new smaller organizations or metrics for that quality? Is that something? They are obsessed with sustainability. Um, absolutely. Um, they. But, you know, no, no, that's a weird, that's the thing I, I've been noting. No one really seems to want to be in anything for the long haul. <laughs> you know, they they want to sort of. Yeah, it's amazing. It really is. And uh, and in fact, um, you know, some of this some of this funding came about because they had been funding a a um, uh, you know another university in the state to do all this sort of incubation work to help sort of uh, local news uh, outlets develop, and they. they Lost interest in that, you know. On what was the term? Oh, I, I heard this term. I don't remember which which funder this was, but it was when asked why he was moving away from funding some work to to, to funding a bunch of you know to, his his expression. Apparently, he uses it all the time. Fuel the swarm. I like that. Fuel the swarm, and the idea was just just you know put some money there, put some money there, and see what happens. It was you know it was it was you know. It was not about sort of a drill, a deep dive into any one thing. It was, you know, let it rain and just, you know, little bits here and there and see, you know, what, you know, what percolates. Uh, and that, to me, that was an interesting sort of encapsulation, perhaps, of, 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 of how uh, funders are approaching this space. Fuel, fuel the swarm. The, the presumption there is that there's a swarm to fuel, which is, I guess, good. That, they, you know, there's a lot of work out there, a lot of people out there looking to have their, you know, to, to, to sort of try something innovative. And that's the way the, you know, some of these foundations are approaching how they're going to try to, to, to develop this space. So, question about demographics. Um, I teach in Europe sometimes, and I have a class of media students, about 100 students this summer, media students, uh, of whom three said they got the news from newspapers, mm-hmm. none got it from television, and so it's like, well, where do you get it? And it's, you know, Facebook, or whatever, um, mm-hmm. social media seem to be the, the or one another mm-hmm. response. And, um, if you look at newspapers... Which is, gets tricky. We found this in the survey that we did. I think... People, if you ask, you know, we had similar questions like that, you know, from, from my friends, social media, and people conflate that, I think, because we, we had some interesting findings, right? You know, for younger people, if, this, if one of the options is from my friends, they might click that even if it means, you know, my friends sharing it with me through social media. But anyway. Yeah. So I guess the question, if you look at newspaper sales um, or even TV viewerships, nonfiction TV viewerships, it seems to really be kind of middle to late age is where it's where it drops off. Mm-hmm. So how do you account for that when you do your focus groups or when you look at a community where newspapers have died and maybe it's, there are a lot of reasons that may not have to do with um, lack of interest in the news, but maybe the economic situation or demographic. Yeah, no, and that's tricky. No, it did not. It actually did not. Um, but yeah, and that, this, this is the, the challenge we're dealing with. For example, we're trying to you know pick three New Jersey communities that are demographically um, you know different from each other. But the bottom, but you know that's only you know. But we also want geographically different, and we also want you know rural versus urban. So there's all these criteria that matter to our our funders that we're somehow supposed to uh, you know capture in in picking just three communities. Uh, so which is, which is challenging. So so yeah. So that's again back to my point before. I, I think when this type of work, if, if it gets to to scale up, we can start to really start to under, under understand that a bit more. Um, but you know. Not, not, not with three communities, unfortunately. Um, uh, William's question. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but but with the, with you know within the confines of a room of twelve people, which gets tricky. But we do a few of them in each community. Uh, but that's and, and the important. But you know, I, I emphasize that because yeah, it's, we also, by the same token, as as good a job as we might do there, have to resist, you know, generalizing too much from 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 these focus group conversations. Uh, but yeah, so. Um, you know, there's a lot of variable, and which which gets you know we we dealt with this over the summer with the Hurricane Sandy study, which is sometimes you have to tell people, hey, thanks for coming, go home, <laughs> you know, because um, you're you know we need to fit this person in instead of you because that's that's a demographic category that's not represented, and uh, you know, and and again, in a room of twelve people, each person is is actually carrying an, obviously a tremendous amount of weight relative to whatever demographic categories they're uh, they're representing. Yeah, I have, and, it's, it's, and that's, you know, I hope that I'm able to contribute to that backlash, actually, over time. <laughs> I, would be, I, would, I would feel good about that, to be honest. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's I'll, you know, that, and I, I've started to pick that up as well, and I'll be curious to see how much traction it, it gets. studying in a certain region and this idea is such an aggregation and that everything's sort of going in every direction that news is relaying and things are going viral mm. on a bigger than local scale. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering, first of all, uh, if you, how, you, how you're managing that tension between the funders that are sort of supporting local practices and local media but maybe big data or big, bigger ideas, yeah. uh, their ideas are coming from bigger than local sources. And then also along that, I'm also curious if, if there are non-physical, if there are online communities that would be more easily studied or more scalably studied uh, through this method. So people who are maybe interested in a certain topic or expats of a certain community that, uh, that you could actually just study online. I think it would be. But I also think, too, go back to what said before, I, I, you know, I think that, you know, we are again. We're going to be working in these very limited, you know, narrow geographical spaces. Which I, the good that makes my job easier. So, for example, I'm doing this analysis of the uh, local. You know, let's say we do Camden, New Jersey, which is a distinct possibility, um, or a yeah, better example, New Brunswick, New Jersey, uh, right in the middle of the state. Um, we are, you know, we're, we're our focus is on that the local news ecosystem. So. Fortunately, to, you know, the news that's piping in from New York or Philadelphia and those sources are not really going to be part of our analytical frame. But um, where there hasn't been, I don't think, nearly enough work, though, is to understand you know, the nature of these, these hyper-local online news sources. And so that, you know, that's what I'm going to enjoy about sort of having such a narrow geographical frame to work in, that we're going to be able to sort of really drill down and provide a real granular assessment of what a 
bona fide local you know news ecosystem looks like and so and and there is a you know uh, a, a substantial online component to that as well uh, so it's uh, but that's you know, that's the sigh of relief I have that I'm, I'm dealing with these tiny little local, you know, local communities uh, in New Jersey. Have you tried to profile your research? Since it's very hard to measure the news consumption, so uh, unless it's yeah, digitally consumed. So since your presentation is about the use measurement, but I don't see any numbers. No, this, pro this project in particular, just started. We, this is a project I'm telling you about a project that launched this this month. Uh, but we are that you know, again with the, with the audience work, we're specifically going in a qualitative direction because uh, we're trying to provide a sort of a, a counterpoint to the to the generally large amounts of quantitative data that are, are available. Sort of get news organizations to to you know to to explore what these kind of data might be able to tell them. Uh, but no, we're going to. We're actually been in talks with um, with the Internet Archive. Uh, we might take. We might do something where we actually. And uh, you know, actually, I, I'll, I'll send up the trial balloon on this, um, where we apparently we're going to be able to if we you know set the parameters right uh, in terms of the relevant URLs that are serving a particular community. So this would be an online specific element of this, but just could you know in terms of let's say specifying all the relevant news and information sources. Get a sense of what is the actual volume, just in terms of you know bits of data. How much data, uh, and if we you know can we equate that with news and information that this community was served by you know this produce you know these their news and information sources generated X amount of data, uh, and not delve into the specifics of it. But it's it's one thing we're we're toying with, and then also within that context, trying to do some network analysis and map out um, you know the diversity of of you know how how um, you know. How diffused are the are the are the flows? You know, or is it all emanating for you know in terms of who's linking to who and things like that? So you know, that's one of the quantitative approaches where you know speculating might be useful. Uh, but I, you know, I, I'm intrigued. I, I some about some I find that some appealing about that notion of sort of just taking a community and the amount of you know information that has been generated about it as some sort of relevant indicator. But I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it, intuitively, it's it's appealing to me that and apparently that can be done with the Internet Archive data. So uh, we're in the early stages of, of of that as a possibility. Uh, you mentioned you started the research. Yeah. 12 months, 12 months, uh, so uh, I'll see you in a, a year hopefully with something more interesting to say than I did today. <laughs> interested only in we're interested in the news the community you know say we're not interested in national news and things like that yeah
Doesn't that seem like something that would be worth well, I think yeah, well, that's something we'll learn from the from the audience research component, and we know that that and that's that's a substantial problem. A community like New Jersey, a place like New Jersey, is a great example. As we know, for example, you know, the greater the extent to which the New York Times uh, disseminates in a community, you know, that actually there's research that suggests that actually contributes to disengagement from local politics and local community affairs. Uh, it's a you know. It's a somewhat, it's a different but related issue to what we're trying to deal with. So I mean, we, what we do needs to be in, informed by that. Uh, but um, you know, what, you know, our mandate is more just to try to understand how you know how well these communities are doing in producing the information for and about these communities, and that you know, and and that does create a more limited sphere of of, of concern. The fact that the people have other information sources that can you know distract them from this. Is 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 yeah is is well is remains the case and uh, and it needs to inform you know the, the work but we're not it's not a problem we're looking to try to address with this you know. Yeah, well, some of us uh, in the room are engaged in participatory research, so I I don't know if I have the correct understanding of uh, which stage you are at. So uh, for instance, the focus group. Mm-hmm. Would you like? Um, Involve them in uh, making shaping the research questions. The news organizations. You're talking about. Yeah, that's, that's that's such a good question. We're we're actually in discussions with our IRB about this because, you know, on the one because essentially we need to actually get them all IRB approved if they actually um, will you know participate in that way. Uh, and so that's as a conversation we're going to have with with the funder as well about whether they'd like to see it go that far, or does it more that they um, are you know that we engage in conversations with them. After the work has been conducted, and they're, you know, we, we've already learned that they're allowed to, to watch, you know, that, without having to go through IRB training and all that sort of thing. So these, you know, these are sort of the boring practicalities of a lot of this. But yeah, I, you know, my, in my in my ideal scenario, we get to sit down with them and and sort of collaboratively generate the, um, you know, the you know the plan for these for these conversations. Uh, because I think that's important to again getting them to, you know, getting the buy-in that is is part of this as well, which so is to try to sort of acculturate them to a, you know this sort of thinking about in terms of how they engage with their audience. But uh, you know, these we'll see how well we you know, and that and the other part of that too is getting these partners that actually want to invest their time that deeply, uh, which is is you know I, I'm anticipating that not being the easiest thing in the world. Uh, that there's going to be some you know real salesmanship on my part to try to make that happen. Philip, thanks very, very much. Thank you. Uh, there's a reception downstairs, third floor, so anyone wants to come down and join us for more time, come on down. Philip, thanks. Thank you.